Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Spy Hunter. Did you know Spy Hunter began life as a movie-licensed game? You'll hear more about that on this episode of Sprite Castle. But before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy Headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle. Uh, I've juggled things around in the order here a little bit. So first of all, we are going to jump right into the King of the Castle episode. Now, as you guys know, uh, I'm pretty lenient about the Kings of the Castle. All you got to do is listen for that 8-bit song near the end of the episode. You send me that and you send the connection uh, to the game that I reviewed. And so uh, one of the first ones I got was from a longtime listener and Patreon supporter, Mitsuyama. Mitsuyama correctly identified the song as Material Girl from Madonna, and he said he wasn't sure what the connection was with the song and the game Boulder Dash, and that's okay. That's okay. We're pretty lenient here. In fact, Mitsuyama, you were the first one. Why don't you just stand right over here, right on top of this little square I have painted on the floor? Oh, dear. And the crocodiles have not been fed in a while. I'm so sorry that happened, Mitsuyama. Uh, for everyone else who responded, they correctly made the connection that the game uh, in Boulder Dash, you uh, not only some people said you dig through materials, they added that, which is true, but uh, you have to go find diamonds. And of course, in the video for Material World, Madonna, she was the material girl, and it was all about diamonds, and she was kind of parroting uh, Marilyn Monroe, and diamonds are a girl's best friend. So that was uh, that connection. So congratulations to everybody who did make that connection. If you guys would all gather around, we can look down there. Oh, oh, there, oh, there goes parts of Mitsuyama. That's not good. Uh, congratulations. First of all, uh, congratulations to Christian road who not only, uh, correctly identified the song and the connection, but, uh, he did that for the last episode as well. And he got left off the episode. So my apologies for that. Sometimes, uh, every now and then one gets hung up in the spam filter or I just miss it on the incoming and, uh, they don't always go out. So congratulations, uh, to Christian for both the last episode and, uh, this episode. Uh, so that's like a double King of the castle. You get, uh, uh, your first pick, of course, everyone who, uh, was a VIP who was chosen to be a VIP King of the castle. This episode, we had two magnificent prizes. Uh, the first was a pair of front row tickets to see Madonna in concert. She is still, uh, screeching her hits from the eighties. <laughs> and, uh, the other prize was a pair of noise canceling headphones that could be used at that same concert, if one so desired. So again, congratulations to Christian Road. Uh, Bill Spear got the correct answer. Joe Sharippa, Steve Sharippa, Matthew Perron, John Boat of Karshaller, of course, always in with the correct answer. CBM Nut, Pixel Poldy, Andrew Evans got the correct answer. And finally, Bernard Lucas from Austria 
G'day, mate. Um, <laughs> that's a joke uh, Americans uh, make about dumb Americans not knowing the uh, difference between Austria and Australia. Uh, but I certainly do know the difference between the two. So uh, we certainly um, love all the uh, kangaroos and koalas you have there in Austria. So uh, congratulations again uh, to all of this episode's Kings of the Castle. Uh, if you would like to become one of the Kings of the Castle, all you've got to do is listen for the 8-bit song that plays at the end of this episode. It will be related to the game, but will not be from the game itself. And all you've got to do is send an email to me at robohara at robohara.com. Uh, put King of the Castle in the in the uh, subject field, if you would. That uh, helps it skip through any of Gmail's spam filters and let me know what the song and the artist is and also what connection it has to the game. Uh, don't forget that part. You don't want to end down there, end up in the old uh, crocodile pit. Bad news down there. But fortunately, uh, looks like Mitsuyama's going to survive, so he will be around uh, for the next episode. So sorry, sorry about the drop there. Um, in Commodore news, of course, uh, lots of stuff, you know, now that I'm doing so many different podcasts, um, Sprite Castle is, there's usually three to four weeks between episodes and there's so many games and it's just, uh, it's been a busy month and it's hard to keep up with all the new releases, but a couple of things jumped out that I wanted to mention. And the first was that there is a new release of fast Hackem. <laughs> fast Hackem 9.9 was released by feeding dragon. Now, uh, fast Hackem, if you grew up in the 80s using a Commodore 64, Fast Hackem, uh, I believe that was by the Bit Brothers, was the go-to copy program for Commodore 64 owners. It had all different kinds of options. You could do a fast copy, uh, where if you were copying discs that had no copy protection, they would go really fast. Um, it had a nibbler, like a heavy-duty, you know, bit-by-bit copier, um, and also... It was known for its support of parameters. And so what a parameter was, which when I was a kid, uh, I remember meeting up with people and they would always say the uh, parameter, which drove me crazy. Uh, but what parameters were, uh, were little patches that could be applied to copies to make them work. So um, almost you could almost think of it like a crack or something like we had uh, later on in the PC world. Uh, so... If you had like a copy protected, like an original of uh, California Games, and you just copied it, made a copy, it wouldn't work because it might be looking for some specific, um, you know, maybe a bad sector on the disk or, or something specific to the disk. And so then you would run the parameter on on your copy and it would fix it. It would patch it so that it then worked. Um, and that was the way that, uh, you know, you copied original discs or discs that hadn't been, uh, had the copy protection removed. So, uh, anyway, there were lots of different versions of fast Hackem. I think fast Hackem six was the one that I used most. Uh, but there were lots of fake versions of fast Hackem where people made, they would, you know, change the, put their name on the title screen and change the version number to something else or whatever. So, um, the only other copier that I really used was Maverick, which Maverick kind of came later and it was like a heavy duty, um, copier. Um, but, uh, you know, fast Hackem was just the down and dirty. It worked. Uh, it, it was, um, my go-to and I think a lot of people's go-to, uh, copy software on the, on the Commodore 64. So 
Uh, what Feeding Dragon has done is he's made this ultimate version of Fast Hackem. So he went through all the old versions of Fast Hackem. He made sure all the utilities were on there. Uh, it has been, I guess it's updated where it works in the uh, Commodore 128. It works in 80 column mode or for the 64, it works in 40 column mode. Uh, it is now two sides of a disc, which I think a lot of times, I mean, it already was, but it's, uh, uh, has every parameter that was every released for fast hack. So I think this is like the ultimate version of fast hack. If you used fast hack or still use it for Commodore 64 stuff, then, uh, go out there and look for fast hack version 9.9 by feeding dragon. Also, I think most people know this, but if you have something like the 1541 Ultimate or an Ultimate 64, these things that use uh, D64 disk images, you can copy to and from disk images using FastHackem. Uh, I've used Maverick more for doing that in the past, and and there are some built-in utilities now, I think, for uh, file copies and stuff, but uh, you can you know mount let's say a virtual D64 disk image in the virtual drive eight, you could connect a physical drive nine and you can make real floppy disks from those disk images and vice versa. You could take your real disks and just use a normal copy program and copy them over uh, to virtual DC64 images. Now, again, I think some of those things now there are utilities built in, but uh, that option is there. That's kind of a cool thing that you could do. So, uh, anyway, that's it. Uh, Fast Hackem 9.9 out there by Feeding Dragon. Uh, another game that was mentioned on the Discord, and this is on the Amigos uh, Discord, which you get access to if you're one of my uh, patrons on Patreon, uh, is uh, Elite Plus 4. And this is the quote-unquote flicker-free version. Now, if you don't remember Elite from back in the day, it was one of the first... Um, space 3d trading simulators. You were in a spaceship, you flew around. Uh, it had kind of pseudo vector graphics as, as best that the Commodore 64 can do. But uh, the way that it drew those things and updated them, there was a lot of flicker in that game. And so someone developed a patch. Um, I want to say for the SpedEx, uh, uh, ZX Spectrum version, I'm not sure that that's right, but there was a, a patch for another, uh, system, and then that got ported over to the C64, and so someone has released this new version. You could get this on the Commodore Scene database, CSDB, uh, and look for Elite Plus 4. So if you enjoyed Elite back in the day, by the way, Elite was probably best known for coming with, I believe it was called the Lipstick Adapter, and that was a headset uh, that you plugged into the other joystick port and were on your head, and during the game, you could just shout fire, and it worked as another fire button. But you could shout anything you wanted into it, you know, and, and like a whoopee. <laughs> I think we did that a lot, or yowza. Uh, and it would, um, anything basically would, would trigger it. So it wasn't really like, it was it was no Siri. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I definitely played Elite as a kid. And so this Flickr free version looks uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I also saw uh, a demo now being shown of Eye the Beholder. I think on Indie Retro News, they were uh, given access to the demo 
Eye of the Beholder is one of the classic AD&D games that only came out for the, uh, not only, but it didn't come out for the Commodore 64. It was more 16-bit. Uh, I know I played it on uh, the PC. I think I got it around the time I got a 486, so it was kind of in that era, you know, mid-90s. Uh, so it's been interesting to see it get ported back to the C64. I've seen lots of screenshots uh, of them working on this, and it looks it looks pretty good. So I'm I'm looking forward to this being released and checking that out. Uh, on to the question of the week. Now I got a question from uh, Bill, one of my uh, Patreon supporters, who said. Uh, what is your favorite joystick on the Commodore 64? Now, I think uh, part of this is because I just recently bought the new iCode, uh, which I talked a little bit about, and I've shown it on the stream. The iCode is a small USB device that has two uh, DB9 joystick ports. Now, I had uh, an adapter, a cheap adapter that I used for a long time, and the ports just wore out and it kind of quit working. So I upgraded to this. I want to say it was about 30 bucks, give or take. Uh, I ordered mine on Amazon, but you could order it directly from their site. But I didn't see any reason not to buy it uh, through Amazon. It is a little, uh, it comes in a like a 3D printed yellow case. Mine does um, with a USB cable that plugs in. And like I said, the two DB9 ports. Uh, and that allows you to use the old Atari style joysticks, uh, you know, anything with that, that nine port, uh, I think you could even use, man, I hate to say Sega Genesis because, uh, um, you gotta have, uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was thinking about how it could harm plugging it into a real Commodore 64, but it shouldn't be any problem with this. I haven't tried that on this yet. Um, because that's not my favorite Atari style joystick. I have two favorite Atari style joysticks. I may have talked about this a long time ago on the podcast, but the first is the Epix 500 XJ. I think most people are familiar with this. This is the, uh, black and red joystick by Epix that you kind of hold in your hand. You cradle your hand sideways. Uh, you use your index finger for the fire button and you use your uh, right hand to control the joystick. These are ergonomically designed for right-hand people. Uh, so if you're left-handed, this is not the joystick for you. I don't think that they made a left-handed version of this joystick. Uh, the Epix 500 XJ came in uh, a few different configurations. There was one for the Sega. Uh, there was one released for the Apple II, uh, which also works for the IBM. It's that 15-pin uh, little port adapter. They released one for the original Nintendo, the NES. They had one. And then uh, if you look at the ad, it has four different ones. Those are the first three. And the fourth one is the one that I own and that uh, we're all familiar with. Uh, and it says compatible with Commodore 64, Commodore 128, VIC-20, Amiga, all Atari computers, including the Atari ST2600 and 7800. <laughs> so uh, if it uses one of those DB9 ports, uh, you can probably use the Epix 500 XJ on that. I've told this story before, but I many, many years ago on digital press, I saw someone selling uh each of these types of joysticks, you know what? I'm going to tell this. Well, I'm going to tell it now. Uh, but they were selling uh, these Epix joysticks, and they had four of them new in the box. And they also had four of the Craft joystick, which is my other favorite joystick. 
uh, new in the box. And so they were selling them for, I think, $10 each at the time. And I emailed them and said, I'll take them all. So I have, uh, I think I opened two of the Epix joysticks and the other two are still new in the box on the shelf. And I opened one of the craft joysticks. Now the craft joysticks didn't turn out to be the exact ones I loved, uh, but they're, they're close enough. The craft joysticks, um, if you remember those, they're kind of, uh, they're very square and blocky and they have one small square button, uh, like where the Atari fire button would be. And the ones that I had as a kid, uh, were almost the exact same color as the Commodore 64, that kind of tan, uh, color and had a black fire button. Now the ones that I ordered, uh, were black with a red fire button. So you could tell they were designed uh, to, you know, the color scheme matches the Atari 2600, not the Commodore 64. So I didn't actually know that they made different models for, uh, with DB9 connections. Now the uh, craft that I had as a kid had a switch on the bottom that would switch it between four way and eight way directional. The ones that I got here do not have that switch. And they seem to work okay, but I kind of like that original beige one. So I need to uh, get online and look for one of those. I don't have one of the beige ones, which was also, like I said, one of my other favorite joysticks. Um, one of the things I liked about them is that the uh, the cable, the wire, the uh, uh, the cord was really long. I want to say it was like six foot long, where all the other ones I had were two foot or three foot or something like that. I mean, so it was it was much longer. It was noticeably longer than all the other joysticks. So you could really kick back and and use that joystick without things getting all tangled up. So, um, but anyway, those are my two favorite joysticks that I owned uh, as a kid. Again, I use the Epix 500XJ when I'm playing on the emulator. Uh, or when I'm playing on a real Commodore 64. Uh, and uh, that craft, I have those other kinds of craft ones, but uh, I would like to pick up another beige uh, craft joystick. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at Patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. By the way, I posted a big, long uh, post on Patreon last night about Spy Hunter. has some secret Spy Hunter stories in there that won't be in this episode. So if you want that kind of information, go to my Patreon page. That, again, is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And those are this week's headlines. Brought to you by my local paperboy who just got passed by a car that drove into the water and turned into a boat. That's rad. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. 
So last week I was chatting with my friend Rob Sherwin. He was featured last night in my Patreon post, uh, and we were talking about what kind of food could I include in an episode about Spy Hunter. Absolutely nothing came to mind. And the first joke, by the way, Rob Sherwin's a very funny guy, and the first joke he made is, hey, what about something with liquid smoke? (laughs) And I thought, you know what? I do know something with liquid smoke, Uh, and that is ham with liquid smoke. We've done that before, and I actually have a funny story about that. Uh, When I had um, just started working at my job, and this is back in the uh, mid-90s, I worked for a contract company that was contracting uh, to the government for a help desk. And uh, when Christmas came around, they gave everyone a ham. (laughs) This is a very old school thing to do. I really enjoyed it as a kid. And my mother-in-law was running, she owned her own barbecue business at the time. And so I gave the ham to my wife and I said, would you have your mom smoke this ham? Because we were going to have a, uh, a Christmas luncheon, a holiday luncheon at work. And I thought that would be a cool thing to do. And so, uh, you know, the day of my wife, uh, prepared, uh, the ham, I I'd had no part of that. And I brought it to work and everybody went crazy about how delicious it was. They were like, Oh, you could taste the hardwood people, people that get into smoking meat like that. They, I mean, they get it. They're like, Oh, I could, is this cherry wood or is this Applewood, like I can tell what kind of you know. I mean, people are going crazy. It was very, very popular, and everybody loved it. And when I got home that night, I told my wife, I said, you know, the fact that your uh, mom smoked that ham for us, and people went crazy. And my wife said, my mom didn't smoke that ham. I never made it over there. I just put liquid smoke on it and, and <laughs> sliced it up. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, and I had told everybody at work that it had, that we had had it smoked uh, in, in my mother-in-law's uh, giant smoker. She had a smoker that you could smoke 24 slabs of ribs at the same time. It was this gigantic smoker on a trailer. Uh, and so I, that always, I didn't even know what liquid smoke was back then. And I always thought that was uh, kind of a funny thing. And so uh, last week, my wife made a giant ham that she put into the crock pot and let it simmer all day. And, and we sliced it up. We had it on sandwiches and stuff. And I asked her if we had any liquid smoke and, uh, she said no, but she did pick up a small bottle of it. So I had a ham sandwich last week, uh, with a slice of cheese on it. And, uh, a little bit of Miracle Whip. I'm more of a Miracle Whip guy than a mayonnaise guy. And uh, especially for a ham sandwich, I like a little Miracle Whip on there. And just a little dab of liquid smoke, which I thought really added uh, to the meat taste. Um, and uh, it was just perfect. And speaking of things that smoke, Spy Hunter was published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by Sega Enterprises. It is a game for one or two players that uses joystick or keyboard controls. We're going to get a little bit into, or just touch on, the history of Spy Hunter. Spy Hunter was made, created by a man named George Gomez. Now, George Gomez worked with Tom Leon while he was working on Spy Hunter, and the two of those men had worked together previously, 
and created the video game Tron in 1982 for Bally Midway. Uh, now, George Gomez was inspired by two things when he was working on Spy Hunter. Uh, the first thing he was really inspired by was James Bond. And as the legend goes, he was listening uh, to a cassette tape that contained the James Bond themes. Uh, and so this really inspired him. He wanted to make a James Bond game involving a car that had all kinds of special gadgets and weapons, just like James Bond car did uh, in the books and in the movies. Uh, now, another uh, inspiration that not everybody mentions is that he was also inspired by the television show Knight Rider. Now, this is apparent in two specific places. The first is uh, to get your car upgraded to the weapons. Uh, you know, when you get additional weapons, you drive up into the back of a semi-trailer. And George uh, Gomez has said that he took that directly from Knight Rider, Kit driving up into uh, the semi where they would work sometimes on Knight Rider. Uh, but the other thing is on the uh, some of the original artwork, if you look at it, the layout, it shows the inside layout of the dash and the steering wheel of your car in Spy Hunter, which is referred to as Spy Car <laughs> in the manual. And it's almost identical to the layout of Kit. Uh, in fact, it lines up almost almost exactly the same. So uh, definitely Knight Rider also influenced this game. Now, uh, unfortunately for Bally Midway, they could not get the rights uh, to the James Bond theme. So originally, you know, everybody associates one particular song with this game, but uh, originally what they wanted was the James Bond theme, and uh, they could not get those rights. Uh, and in fact, originally the graphic of the car, of your spy car, looked exactly like 007's Aston Martin, and they had to change that as well. So uh, originally, Spy Hunter was designed uh, or intended to be a James Bond game, but as those uh, uh, without the music and without the car, it just became a game of its own standing. Now, this game was published in the U.S. by Sega. Uh, we have talked about Sega games in the past. Uh, Sega was uh, a company originally named Service Games. A service starts with S-E. Game starts with G-A. Uh, they were founded in 1940 in Honolulu. Uh, they originally developed slot machines, and then in 1965, they merged with a company named Rosin Enterprises, and they shortened their name from Service Games to Sega. Uh, some of the Commodore 64 games that Sega released included Alien Syndrome, Altered Beast, Congo Bongo, Frogger, Golden Axe, Outrun, Power Drift, Shinobi, Space Harrier, Super Hang-On, Zaxxon, Super Zaxxon, Tapper, Up and Down, and Wonder Boy. Lots and lots of classic arcade games uh, that were ported to the Commodore 64. Now, uh, I looked at a lot of the artwork of this game, uh, and a lot of the screenshots or of the box art that I found were from the UK version, and they say published by Sega slash US Gold. Now, I believe US Gold, this gets a little murky. This is kind of difficult to find information on over the past week or so, uh, but I believe US Gold uh, published the game 
with Sega's assistance in the UK. So on the US versions, uh, it only says Sega that I could find. But on the UK ones, it says US Gold slash Sega. Now, I did find a website that said the game was developed by US Gold, but I don't think that's correct. I think that is incorrect internet information. If somebody could uh, correct me or prove me wrong, I would love to find out. But uh, all the the versions that I have, like the U.S. version, does not mention U.S. gold at all. Not in the manual, uh, not anywhere in, in the game itself. It just says uh, developed by Sega or published by Sega and the original by Bally Midway. So I know that the original arcade game is from Bally Midway. Uh, I know that in the U.S. it was published by Sega. I know that in the U.K. it was published by Sega slash U.S. Gold. Uh, but I did not find any additional development information for this game. In an excerpt from the manual, it says you are a world-class spy driving for your life in an ultra-equipped turbocharged spy mobile. The road is crawling with enemy agents bent on your destruction. They'll stop at nothing, so neither can you. Maneuver your car with all the speed and skill you can, always watching for the road lord, the switchblade, and enforcer, and other enemy agents as they try to stop you cold on land and water you must destroy them before they destroy you again we talked about this is a, a port of the arcade game the arcade game was released in 1983 the commodore 64 version and many other computer versions were released in 1984 the front of the box screams 1980s <laughs> it is mostly done in 80s pastel colors you've got this kind of you got red blue yellow in the background there's like orange and pink but they're all just a little bit um lighter shades it just has a very 80s miami vice kind of feel to it uh there's this super cool graphic of uh well of course it says spy hunter across the top on the left hand side you we've got uh a picture of the spy hunter and his lovely lady who's posing next to him um it's funny how the graphic how the face of the guy the spy hunter changes depending on what you're looking at in some of the early advertisements, it looks a lot like Michael Knight. It looks a lot, a lot <laughs> like David Hasselhoff and Michael Knight. But if you look at the cover of the Commodore 64 version with what he's wearing, it looks much more like the Terminator. And if you look at uh, the way his hair is and his face and he's holding this kind of space age laser gun that looks like uh you know something from the terminator uh it just looks like i mean i think spy hunter uh liberally borrowed a lot of different uh <laughs> public um pop culture is the word i'm looking for pop culture references um, we have this cool picture at the bottom of the spy hunter's car. Uh, it is shooting, uh, machine gun bullets out the front. Uh, it is, it looks like a, almost like a red, 
Lamborghini, which is not what the Spy Hunter car looks like in any version of Spy, Spy Hunter. But, um, you know, there was a lot of liberties when it came to the artwork on the front of these games. On the back of the box, uh, it starts off with five screenshots of the game. And if you've ever played the game, you will immediately notice that these screenshots are not from the game. This looks like screenshots that they're not screenshots. They're definitely uh, pasted up artwork uh, where someone has cut out, uh, you know, like little explosions and and uh, drawn the different colors. The colors that are on the back of the box uh, are not uh, natural Commodore 64 colors. Uh, you know, the blues aren't the same. The, uh, there's a level, it shows like there's orange and green. It's just, it's obviously it's, it's, um, uh, a pasted up version of what the game would look like. It's not from the arcade version and it's not from the Commodore 64 version. Now, the first interesting thing that you will see on the back is this little note, which we're going to talk about here. It says, use with two joystick controllers or keyboard when played with joysticks requires two standard Atari joystick controllers. Now, as a kid, I'm not sure I would have really understood what that meant. When I think of a standard Atari joystick controller, I would assume what they meant is a DB9 any DB9 controller, any type, a craft joystick, an Epix joystick, or whatever. I would call those standard Atari joysticks, but that's not what this means. We're going to talk about it. To truly play this game, if you were to have purchased this game back in the 80s, to truly play it the way it was intended, you need actual Atari brand joysticks. I'll talk about that, why, uh, the reason for that in just a minute. At the bottom, it says considered armed and extremely dangerous. The official home version of Bally Midway's number one arcade thriller includes exclusive dual control module. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. You control the turbocharged race car slash hydro spy boat. You control a deadly arsenal of missiles, machine guns, oil slicks, and smoke screens. Multiple nerve-shattering spy action screens. I love the way they write this stuff. Sophisticated spy-challenging graphics. I mean, I don't know that it's spy-challenging sophisticated. I think it looks like the arcade game. Uh, anyway, it says, this is hardly a game. It's a high-speed test of your secret agent skills. Meet the challenge and survive Spy Hunter. And at the bottom, uh, in the fine print down here, it says, Spy Hunter is a trademark of Bally Midway. Uh, it goes on. I'm trying to read all this fine print. All rights reserved for Bally Midway. Bally Midway is a trademark. Commodore is a trademark. Uh, copyright 1984 Sega. And then it says published by Sega Enterprises. No mention on this version at all of U.S. Gold. Now, the manual to Spy Hunter is a couple, I think it's eight pages long altogether. But what it starts out with is the assembly of your dual joystick module. So let's get into this. Um, the arcade version of Spy Hunter uh, has controls that do not translate to home computer joysticks. It has a steering wheel, it has a, uh, a shifter, and then it has all these different buttons uh, for your weapons because you have multiple weapons in the game. And so there were a lot of different ways that developers came up with to deal with arcade games that use dual 
buttons. Like, for example, and the one that just jumps into my mind is Commando. In Commando, uh, you fire a machine gun, but you also have to throw grenades. Well, of course, we all know, we've discussed it uh, many, many times, the limitation of the Commodore 64's joystick with its single fire button. So in Commando, you have to do two different things. You have to fire, you have to throw grenades. And so the way that Commando deals with it is you throw grenades with the space bar. So when you played the game, you would sit in front of your computer with the joystick right in front of uh your keyboard and the way a lot of people do it is you use your thumb to fire with the joystick and you use your index finger to tap the space bar that's how you would throw a grenade other games dealt with this by the length of time that you held down a button for example choplifter uh on uh, the original version of choplifter on the atari and apple used joysticks that had uh, uh multiple buttons or like the apple version or the pc version so you have one button to fire and the other button rotates your helicopter around. Commodore 64 only has one button. So uh, that is handled by the length of time that you hold down the fire button. If you tap the fire button in Choplifter, uh, you shoot machine guns. If you hold it down, the helicopter rotates. So for some reason, Sega decided to try something unique with Spy Hunter. And so their solution is the dual joystick module, which is this piece of plastic that becomes a holder for two joysticks. So uh, the joysticks are stacked uh, not side by side, but with one on top of the other, not not literally on top, but uh, one in front of the other. And so the bottom joystick is oriented just like you hold a normal joystick. Uh, you know, the, the button for an Atari joystick, the button would be in the upper left. The top joystick is rotated 90 degrees counterclockwise. So if you turn the joystick 90 degrees to the left, the two fire buttons will be next to one another. And so the two joysticks snap into this module, sit down in this module um, with that orientation. So now when you're holding it, your right hand is using the joystick on the bottom joystick to control the car. The norm, the button on that joystick is firing uh, your, your uh, machine guns. And then right above that, you have the button on the other joystick, which is for your rear-facing weapons. That would be your smoke screen and your liquid smoke, or your liquid smoke and your um, uh, uh, oil slicks. Now, there's a lot of different ways they could have handled that. And I, I don't know if this is true or not. Um, but sometimes when, when games include stuff like this, I think that it was done, uh, as a way to prevent piracy, because if you download this game, you don't get that plastic thing that holds the joysticks together. Um, and honestly, for a long time, I didn't know that the other joystick, the second joystick controlled those weapons. So I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> I didn't know how to uh, shoot the smoke or the oil out of the rear of my car. Uh, so it is a little bit of a deterrent. Um, it's also a piece of plastic that you have to store in your desk for one single game. And that uh, is always a little bit of a deterrent uh, to owning things like this. Again, I mentioned in the news section, I mentioned Elite. Elite came with that um, lipstick headset 
that was only used for Elite. <laughs> so it's in it's an additional peripheral that only works with one game. So it, that it's a little odd, uh, and playing it today. Uh, that makes it a little more difficult. Now, I will tell you what I did was to play this game in the uh, emulator that I was using. I put uh, my joystick on port one in the emulator, and on port two, I set it to keyboard controls, and I set the fire button to the space bar. So when I was playing it, I could use the joystick to control the spy hunter, the button to shoot the machine guns, and then I could use the space bar uh, for the smoke and the oil. That works really well uh, on an emulator, not so well on a real Commodore 64, unless you have uh, one of those joysticks where you can map a second button uh, or something like that. So uh, it's a weird decision and a unique controller setup uh, for this game that didn't really need it, but that's that's, uh, what we get with Spy Hunter. So when we load the game, nothing really comes up until we get to the first menu. We see the Spy Hunter logo. It says Spy Hunter. It's underlined. We can see uh, the Spy Car. It says Copyright 1983, Bally Midway. And then it scrolls from the middle of the screen. I mean, it scrolls all the way down. And that's pretty cool. Uh, It's a very, very smooth scroll. There's no flashing or or jumpiness, anything like that. Um, And this is early enough in the Commodore 64 life where something like that was impressive. You know, you play a cheaper game and it would just flip from one screen to the next. So the fact that it scrolls all the way off into the game, you go, that's pretty cool. Uh, So it scrolls uh, from the top to the bottom, and then it scrolls off to reveal uh, the game playing itself in demo mode. The first thing that I noticed during the demo mode is that the Spy Hunter car, the Spy car, acts very strange. (laughs) It doesn't play the game like a normal person would play the game. It doesn't get up to speed. Sometimes it stutters around and and, uh, it almost uh, instantly drives off the road and dies or crashes into something or whatever. And so uh, they didn't spend a lot of time on the AI (laughs) on the game playing itself. I mean, someone could have just played the game. They could have recorded that uh, input and just replayed that over and over. But it so when you're watching the demo, it doesn't really show you how to play the game because the car is just so it just drives uh, uh, in a very odd fashion. Uh, once we start the game, we hit a key. We're given a couple of different options. Uh, the first is it says key or joy. And this is our, uh, where we input, we tell it if we want to play with the keyboard or with the joysticks. Now, uh, I'll mention the controls here in just a moment, but one advantage to playing with the keyboard is that you use two buttons on the key, two different key presses for your forward and reverse weapons. So uh, that it almost controls better. Uh, That part is easier with a keyboard. Now, whether or not you think uh, driving the car with a keyboard versus uh, a joystick is easier or harder, that's that's up to you. Uh, We also have, uh, after we get past that, it says novice or expert. Uh, And this uh, specifically controls the... uh, 
way that the enemy cars, how aggressive they are in the uh, expert mode, they come very quickly and they will forcibly attack your car. A lot of times in the novice mode, they're just kind of obstacles driving down the street and uh, won't directly engage you. I mean, they do, but not uh, as often or as aggressively as they do in the expert mode. Now, when the game starts, one of the things you'll notice, that one of the things that jumps out to me as someone who grew up playing this arcade game is that uh, Spy Hunter on the Commodore 64 is presented in a four to three horizontal ratio instead of a vertical aspect, which the arcade game uh, was. Now, you know, this was a big problem for companies who were porting arcade games to home game systems. Uh, a lot of arcade games, classic arcade games, uh, Pac-Man, uh, Centipede, uh, Donkey Kong, all those games had vertical monitors. And at home, people had horizontal television. So there were a couple of different ways uh, that you could handle that. If you look at something like Pac-Man, or Donkey Kong, uh, what companies tended to do was just stretch those graphics out. And so Pac-Man, the maze just becomes more of a horizontal orientated maze uh, or oriented maze compared to, uh, you know, the uh, vertical version that's in the arcade. So they're not, they kind of, when you see them, you go, eh, it's not like the arcade version. Now, there were releases of Donkey Kong later uh, where they did do that, the uh, vertical orientation, they just put the score and things like that on the side, and it looks a lot more authentic. It looks a lot more like the arcade version. Not all games did that, and they didn't do that with Spy Hunter. So again, we have it in this um, four, four, four to three aspect ratio, which makes the game a lot harder because in the arcade version, you because it's vertical, you can see a lot further ahead than you can in this version. So things tend to come very, very quickly uh, in this version of the game. Of course, the game begins with the red semi-truck unloading your spy car. And the minute you hit the ground, you need to merge onto the road and take off. Uh, you will see road uh, in the middle and trees and bushes on the outside. If you run into the tree or the bushes, your car will explode and you will die. <laughs> uh, at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a counter that starts with 999 and it begins counting down. Now, the way Spy Hunter works is while that counter is still going, you get unlimited men. So you can play and crash as many times as you want while that counter is counting down. And during this time, you're also earning score and you can earn additional Spy Hunter cars or Spy Cars. Uh, so after that counter is done, however many men you have left, and you can earn, continue to earn uh, free cars, but uh, you no longer have unlimited cars after that counter runs out, which was kind of a nice feature in the arcade. It wasn't uh, you put a quarter in and in 10 seconds you were dead. You were given a certain amount of time where you got to play the game. So uh, that was pretty cool. Now, as you merge onto the road, you will also immediately see other cars uh, in front of you, behind you. We're going to talk about the different types of enemies in this game, and you will have to learn which ones are innocent bystanders and which ones are enemy spies out to end your life. <laughs> uh, 
Again, we talked about the controls. A joystick in port one controls your spy car and the fire button shoots your machine guns. A joystick in port two, the only the button is used and that button is used to fire off your rear weapons. You have some additional keys on the keyboard. F1 restarts the game. F3 resets the game. Uh, restore will reset. It will exit the game all the way back to the title screen. And F7 will pause your game. Again, if you've played the arcade version of this, you know that there's a lot of controls. And so most of those controls have been simplified or removed from the home ports of this game. Uh, in the arcade, first of all, you had a shifter, like to go from low gear to high gear. That's gone. Uh, you just control your speed with the joystick. In the arcade, of course, you used a steering wheel, a yoke, and on the home version, it's just the joystick. But also on the arcade version, there were all kinds of different buttons for the different weapons, and they would flash and light up as you got different uh, weapons, obtain different weapons as you move throughout the game. Uh, that has also pretty much been eliminated. You used your button, fire button on port one for your machine guns. The fire button on port two does your rear-facing weapons. Also, later, you can earn missiles later in the game, and that is done by the same button that fires uh, your machine guns. If you want to play this game with the keyboard, it has built-in keyboard controls, and those for up, down, left, and right are I, K, J, and L, and your weapons for uh, firing forward and backward are A and Z. So it's a pretty good layout if you're trying to use... Uh, keyboard controls. Again, I think it's a good idea for the weapons to have the two buttons, but I don't know that uh, driving the Spy Hunter car at high speeds is as easy to control with the keyboard. I think that's probably easier with the joystick. Now, the goal of the game is to drive as far as you can, as fast as you can. <laughs> That's it. Uh, there is no end to Spy Hunter. Uh, the guy uh, who created the game created this big, long path with graph paper. There's videos of that on YouTube. Uh, he plotted out the entire uh, way that the road went on graph paper, uh, but it does eventually wrap around. So there is no end to the game. It is just drive and build up a high score until the enemy spies eventually destroy all your spy cars uh, on the road. This mission will be prevented or your success, I suppose will be uh, hampered by enemy cars on the road. Now, each of these enemy cars has one thing uh, that uh, one either defense or one attack. Uh, and when you see them, they're very easy to recognize. So you're very rarely surprised uh, by a car. When you roll up on, you see these cars, you know exactly what they're going to do. The first one is called the Road Lord, and that is the bulletproof car. Now, by the way, I never knew until I read this manual, I never knew that these cars had uh, different names. We just... Uh, you know, you recognize them and you know what they are. So this is the bulletproof car. Uh, it will try to hit you, uh, like sideswipe you and knock you off the road into the trees where your car will explode. Uh, so, uh, the way that you deal with this is you have to smash into him first and try to knock him off the road. Uh, another car is called Switchblade, and it says that Switchblade has buzz saw hubcaps. Now, when I always saw these, I always thought of the cars in Speed Racer that had the little things that would come out on the side of the cars and try to cut Speed Racer's tire. Uh, we saw the same kind of thing in the uh, in the final race of the movie Grease. Um, 
where uh, uh, they were doing their final final race, and the other guy had the car that <laughs> the little saws that came out and and uh, sawed up his car. Uh, so switchblade when he pulls up next to you, if he hits you with the switchblades, you'll just spin out of control. You're dead. Uh, there is the enforcer, and the enforcer. This is plain and simple. He just has a shotgun. So when he pulls up next to you, he will fire the shotgun. So you don't want to be alongside him. Uh, and then uh, there is the copter, aka the mad bomber. And so when the helicopter arrives, it will just start throwing bombs out of the helicopter and exploding them. And uh, you don't want to be wherever a bomb is exploding on the road. Uh, one of the things I think is interesting about this is that uh, the switchblade basically will kill you if you are next to it. Uh, the enforcer will also kill you if you are next to him. He's the one that fires the shotgun. But the road lord, you have to defeat by being next to because you have to bump him off the road. So uh, that makes you have to look at each car and identify what they are and then react accordingly. So uh, you can't just you know try to bump every car off the road because if you pull up the switchblade and try to bump it, it'll cut your tires and you'll die. Um, but if you are shooting every car and you pull up behind road Lord and you shoot it, it's bulletproof and it won't do anything. So you kind of have to look at each car and see what's going on. Um, now, as everybody knows, in spy hunter, uh, there is a portion of the game where you drive off the road and your car magically changes from the spy car to the spy boat. And there are different enemies in the water section of the game. One of those is Dr. Torpedo, <laughs> which surprisingly is a boat that fires torpedoes. There's also the barrel dumper, which again, not the most creative name is a boat that dumps barrels in front of you. So you have to avoid those. Um, so lots of different enemies in this game. Uh, there are also lots of innocent bystanders in this game In some versions. Uh, I don't know if the Commodore 64 version has motorcycles. I don't remember seeing it now that I say that. Uh, but I remember some versions had motorcycles. Uh, you'll also see like red sedans. Uh, and then of course your, your buddy that drives the semi, none of those things give you points. And in fact, if you shoot any of the innocent people or knock them off the road and cause them to explode and crash, your score changes at the bottom and it says no points, but it stays there for a few seconds. And while that is down there on your scoreboard, you're not building onto your score. So it's almost like a penalty when you, um, accidentally kill an innocent bystander, your score freezes, uh, for just a few seconds. So, um, you don't, you don't lose your life. You don't do anything like that. But if you're trying to get a high score, uh, that will detract from that. Now, I don't really know what I could say, uh, in regards to strategy. Um, I think a lot of people, you have to find, first of all, you have to find that sweet speed for the spy car. You can't go too slow because things will, everybody will catch up from behind, uh, and destroy you, but you can't go too fast because there are things in the road that you have to react to, especially when you're in the water section, there are tiny little islands. And if you hit one of those, you die. So, um, you don't want to go too fast, but you don't want to have to, uh, if you go too slow, everything will catch you. So there is a happy medium speed that you can find in the game. Um, I tend to stay to one side of the road instead of in the middle. You would think being in the middle gives you more time to react to things. But if you're on the side, uh, things can't come up on one side of you. Uh, so, so you kind of have a blocker and also 
a lot of times in the game, the road will split and there will be a median right in the middle of the road. And if you hit that, your car will explode. So if you're to the side, that doesn't happen quite as often. Uh, now, one of the things uh, that this game is known for is the music. And we talked about the graphics. The graphics, uh, well, let's talk about the graphics for just a second. The graphics of the Commodore 64 are so good. Uh, they really look similar to the arcade version. They're not perfect, but the sprites have multi-colors. The car is shaped like a car. All Everything looks really good. The graphics on the side of the road, the little trees have detail and stuff. I have no complaints about the graphics of this game. But when people think of Spy Hunter, they don't think about the graphics. They think about the music. And they think about one song, and that song is the Peter Gunn theme. Now, Peter Gunn, if you're not familiar, was a private eye detective show that aired on television from 1958 to 1960. Uh, now, this is from Wikipedia. It says uh, Henry Mancini wrote the following in his autobiography, which was titled, Did They Mention the Music? He says the Peter Gunn title theme actually derives more from rock and roll than from jazz. I used guitar and piano in unison playing what in music is known as a ostinato, which means obstinate. It was sustained throughout the piece, giving it a sinister effect with some frightened saxophone sounds and some shouting brass. The piece has one chord throughout and uses super simple top line or and a super simple top line. Now, uh, one of the things I read while looking up this uh, was that the piano was actually performed by John Williams, who went on to be uh, quite the conductor in his own right. Now, uh, it does say this. The Peter Gunn theme went on to become an instant hit earning Mancini an Emmy Award nomination and two Grammys. The RCA Victor soundtrack album by Henry Mancini titled The Music from Peter Gunn was voted Album of the Year at the first annual Grammy Awards in 1959 and reached number one in Billboard Pop LP charts. The popularity of this album prompted RCA Victor to issue a second Mancini album of Peter Gunn music titled More Music from Peter Gunn. So it's kind of interesting to me that uh, in the late 1950s uh, through 1960, 1961, that there was this uh, private eye kind of spy related show uh, that most people don't remember, don't know about, but everybody knows the theme song. Everybody knows the theme song to Peter Gunn. And in fact, here is a short clip of the Peter Gunn theme song as it appeared on the television show. Now, fast forward to the early 1980s. Uh, my dad was from Chicago, uh, which made 
the Blues Brothers, a particularly popular movie in our household. I grew up watching the Blues Brothers um, and uh, listening to the music from the Blues Brothers. And when we made the transition from cassettes to CDs, the Blues Brothers soundtrack was probably one of the first 10 or 20 CDs that I owned. I loved uh, the Blues Brothers soundtrack. And if you're familiar with the movie, the Blues Brothers, uh, the Peter Gunn theme appears <laughs> in the movie and on the soundtrack. Uh, so I became familiar with the Peter Gunn theme first through the Blues Brothers and then through this arcade game. So once you've heard that tune, uh, it just sticks in your mind. So I, I remember as a kid instantly recognizing this tune. I think uh, a lot of people go, oh, it's the it's uh, the Spy Hunter song. You know, I think people just hear this and they associate it uh, with Spy Hunter. Now, in the late 1980s, there was a band called Art of Noise, and they released um, uh, some pretty avant-garde music. The the song that I usually uh, associate Art of Noise with is, uh, I believe it's called, Par I don't think it's Paranoia, I think it's Paranormia, uh, and it featured Max Headroom <laughs> in the video and in the song. So Max Headroom uh, provided you know the lyrics, I mean, he, he spoke through the, through the uh, song, and I remember hearing that on the radio. Uh, but Art of Noise also released their own version of the Peter Gunn theme, and here's a little clip from that. So whether you know it from uh, the original show, which is doubtful, uh, from the Blues Brothers, uh, Spy Hunter, the art of noise, or just pop culture in general, I think most people instantly recognize the uh, Peter Gunn theme. So let's talk about the score in this game. Uh, first of all, this is a game that rewards you just for not dying. Uh, while you are going through the water, you gain 15 points for every one-fourth of the screen that you travel through. So that's good. While driving, you get 25 points for every quarter of the screen that goes by. So just by driving and not dying, your score will go up. All the different cars are worth points by destroying Roadlord. That's 100 points. Switchblade is 150. The Enforcer is 500. And if you are able to take out the helicopter with a missile, that is 700 points. Uh, the boats also have their own uh, value. The Barrel Dumper is 150. And Dr. Torpedo is 500. Again, if you shoot the Innocent Bystander cars, it will say no points. And it will pause your score. So during that time, you're not uh, getting the points that normally accumulate by driving on the road or traveling through the water. I looked up reviews for this game on Moby Games and on Lemon64. There were lots of reviews. Uh, this was very, very highly reviewed for the most part. Uh, Computer and Video Game Magazine gave it 37 out of 40. Zap gave it 87 out of 100. So these were all good scores. The lowest review I could find was for Commodore User Magazine, and this was a 56 out of a hundred. Now I just couldn't believe 
that it would get that low of a score. Um, and in fact, it says in the uh, 1985 issue of Commodore User, their overall value for money is two out of five, a 40%. So I don't always do this, but I went and looked up. I went and tracked down this issue of Commodore User Magazine. Uh, this is the June 1985 issue, and I found the Spy Hunter review, and I wanted to find what they didn't like about this game because I think I've, I've mentioned everything negative about this game. I mean, the only things I would say is the screen orientation is different, and you have that joystick thing. Uh, but, you know, other than that, I just... Don't know why anybody would give it 40% out of 100. So anyway, I'm going to read you the entire review, which is, you know, four paragraphs long. It's a very, very, very short review. Uh, but this is the review from uh, that issue of Commodore User Magazine. Again, this is the June 1985 uh, issue. Uh, and by the way, this is a review of the U.S. Gold slash Sega release. So this is a $10 game at this point, a $10 budget release in the U.K., all right, here we go. The action in this arcade conversion takes place on the open road with you at the wheels of your souped-up special agent car. Nasties come in the shape of enemy agents with real mean-sounding names like the Road Lord, Switchblade, the Enforcer, the Mad Bomber, Barrel Dumper, and Dr. Torpedo. Your turbo car is armed only with machine guns at first. Extra weapons have to be earned by successfully driving through one whole sector. If you manage this, the weapons van will appear. Get behind this, then drive up into it via a ramp that comes down. Your car will now be equipped with a new weapon. As you travel, you will need various extra weapons, like the oil slick, smokescreen, and the missiles for attacking the mad copter bombers. The game scrolls vertically and has some quite attractive, ever-changing terrain. Part of the skill required is in keeping your car on the road, avoiding the broken bridges, forks in the road, or being bumped off by the enemy agents. The best part of the game is the water section. You come to an old boathouse on the road. Enter this, and your car is transformed into the speedboat. But don't expect a nice, quiet spin around the bay. To play this game with a joystick, you will need to borrow an extra stick from a friend if you don't have two, and then connect them together following the instructions enclosed. It's a bit of a drawback, but luckily the game can also be played with the keyboard and is actually better this way anyhow. An excellent shoot 'em up just the same. That's the review. The last line of the review is an excellent shoot 'em up just the same. <laughs> And then for their ratings, which are go to a scale of one to five, it says presentation three, skill level three, interest three, and value for money two. I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand how you can say this is a good game. It has uh, good graphics. It says, it says in the thing that it has great graphics. Um, it says, you know, it does say. The joystick second button thing, I get that. That's a weird thing to throw in there. Um, but is that worth taking a game from, you know, 90% down to 40%? I don't I don't think so. And literally, the last line of the review says an excellent shoot 'em up just the same. It's an excellent. It doesn't say good. It doesn't even say great. It says excellent. So that's literally the worst review of this game I could find, uh, which calls it an excellent game. I, I don't know where they got that scoring from. And when you look at the list of reviews, it really jumps out as a low score. But um, 
Yeah. The worst thing they had to say about it was that it was excellent. Uh, Spy Hunter was ported to lots of different systems, uh, but it is at its core an 8-bit game. Uh, along with the Commodore 64, it appeared on the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, the Atari 2600, Atari 8-bit computers, the BBC Micro, ColecoVision, the NES version, which is fantastic, Palm OS, which is interesting, uh, PC Booter, ZX Spectrum. Uh, in... Um, 1986. So uh, let me go back to that. Uh, those are all essentially 8-bit systems. Those are all 8-bit systems. Uh, I guess by the time that we move forward to 16-bit, Spy Hunter was old news. Uh, so in 1986, there was a game called Major Motion, which was released on the Atari ST and the Amiga, which is pretty much Spy Hunter, just not Spy Hunter uh, in name. There was also a game on the Amiga called Action Fighter, which is pretty similar uh, to Spy Hunter. And in fact, there is a homebrew version of Spy Hunter in the works right now for the Amiga. But again, looking at those systems, I mean, Apple II, Atari 2600, ColecoVision, uh, NES, pretty much Spy Hunter had its heyday during the 8-bit era. Now, uh, again, you know, we talked a lot about Peter Gunn and that music at the core. Uh, I mean, it's at the core of this game. It is the heart of this game. When you hear that music, you know uh, it's Spy Hunter. If you walk into an arcade and you can hear that song, that song will cut through the noise of an arcade and you will hear it. So uh, I wanted to compare a couple of different versions. This is just a short clip of Peter Gunn from the arcade version of Spy Hunter. Now, let's compare that to the Commodore 64 version. And again, on the Commodore 64 version, uh, we know that we have a SID chip with three voices. Two of the voices are used for the song, and the third voice is for uh, sound effects. Now, just for giggles, let's take a quick listen to the Apple II intro to Spy Hunter. And finally, this is the MS-DOS version. Now, um, MS-DOS, you know, whenever you listen to sounds, it's always weird because you're doing it through speakers. And originally, it would have been through the PC speaker, so it might have sounded slightly different. But either way, this is what you got. So again, Commodore 64 version sounded fantastic. Absolutely no complaints from me or anyone else about the way uh, this game sounded on the Commodore 64. Now, uh, the original Spy Hunter is the only version of Spy Hunter that appeared on the Commodore 64. But the same year that it was released for the Commodore 64 in 1984, there was a Spy Hunter pinball game which came out. Uh, in 1987, there was Spy Hunter 2, the arcade game. Uh, then 
there was a Japanese uh, developer who released a similar game to Spy Hunter and eventually got it licensed uh, by, uh, I don't know if it was through Sega or Bally Midway, but that was released as Super Spy Hunter here in the U.S. Uh, starting in 2001, we have lots of modern versions of Spy Hunter. Uh, 2001, we get the Spy Hunter reboot on the PS2, Xbox, GameCube, uh, Game Boy Advance, all those systems. And then there have been a few um, sequels to that game released on modern consoles. So Spy Hunter as a franchise is still around today. And by around today, I mean it is still a part of pop culture. Uh, in the 1980s, there's an episode of Murder, She Wrote, in which uh, Jessica Fletcher, uh, played by Angel Lansbury, realizes uh, the solution to a murder case. There's a mystery of a car that has been running people over, and she figures this out while playing Spy Hunter <laughs> in the actual episode. This episode is called Hit, Run, and Homicide. Put in one of them arcade games. Kids around here won't leave it alone. <gasps> Do noisy for my taste, but every little bit. Oh, no. Hey, son. Oh, uh, I just got. I was just trying out the new game. Yeah, it looks like fun. It's a real test of eye-to-hand coordination. Jesse, look what you made me go and do. Well, you shouldn't be wasting your time playing a child's game anyway. It isn't a child's game. It's a test of skill. Oh, well, if you think it's a dad murder why don't you try it? Oh, don't be silly. I knew you'd say that. I don't care how smart you are. You are no match for this thing. I'm not, huh? No. Well, lend me a quarter. With pleasure. Try to keep it out of the ditches. Look out for the rocks. I see it. There's another car. Hush up, Ethan. Maybe you ought to try a little slower. Jesse, a little slower. You're running over everything except the road. Why don't you ease off on the speed until you get the hang of it? I got it. What do you mean you got it? You just whacked out two deer and a motorcycle. Also, if you haven't seen it, there is a very funny episode of Robot Chicken. Uh, the episode is called Dragon Nuts. You can find this on YouTube. Uh, and there is a news broadcast where they are broadcasting news, and they cut in for this emergency uh, breaking news, and it is of a car that is involved in a high-speed pursuit. And as we watch the video uh, through multiple clips, and this is just a part of one of the clips, uh, we realize that it is the car from Spy Hunter that police are chasing. We now take you to our eye in the sky for today's live car chase. Officers are in pursuit of a white sports car, which failed to yield for a routine traffic stop. Good Lord! The sports car now appears to be on fire. No, it's a smokescreen. Whoa, I've never seen anything like this. More later as the story develops. Now, in bringing Spy Hunter full circle, uh, this is, uh, I, I literally cut and paste this from a Wikipedia, so I will try to paraphrase it. But in the summer of 2003, Universal Pictures acquired the rights uh, to Spy Hunter from Midway Games. Uh, Midway now owns the license. Uh, well, Bally Midway, right? Midway. Um, and then uh, the next year, they sign on The Rock. Dwayne Johnson to star in a film adaptation 
of Spy Hunter. Uh, there is a long explanation of what happened. Uh, they had got a budget of uh, $90 million, it says. They had planned to film it in 2004 and release it in 2005. Uh, these original screenwriters were replaced with other screenwriters. Uh, they were going to start filming it. And then in June, it says, the original director uh, left. They hired on John Woo <laughs> to make the game. Uh, they replaced more screenwriters. I mean, it just goes on and on, and you can watch the years. I mean, it starts uh, talking about in the summer of 2003. There were rewrites in the summer of 2006. Uh, John Woo left uh, the project in 2006. They were still working on pre-production. Uh, they did the special effects. It just goes on and on. Then it says 2007, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, which would be interesting, was hired to replace John Woo. They threw the old script away. Uh, the I guess the old script was tied to Nowhere to Run, which was one of the Spy Hunter games. Uh, so then they started working on a new script. Uh, but uh, Paul Anderson left in 2008. Uh, then at some point it says that uh, The Rock... Uh, left that he's no longer uh, associated. And so the last update down here at the bottom, it says in November of 2015, this is 12 years after it started. Um, the original uh, or the, the latest director was replaced uh, with the duo of Neil Graves and Sam Chalson. While Dan Lin and Roy Lee are set to produce the film, but whether Fleischer was still on board to direct remains to be seen. So uh, this is one of those movies that is in movie hell. Uh, I don't know if there will ever be a Spy Hunter movie. Um, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the episode how it was supposed to be uh, a licensed uh, James Bond game. That didn't work out, and it doesn't look like going the other way and making it to the movies uh, is ever going to work out either. If you would like to own your own copy of Spy Hunter on the Commodore 64, you're probably in good luck. Uh, I found versions of the cartridge going for $40 right now on eBay. But if you look at uh, ones that have sold, I found one that sold in the UK for about $14. And if you look at it, that was a lot of eight cassette tapes and Spy Hunter was just one of the eight. So whatever the math of $14, one eighth of that is what you might be able to buy uh, Spy Hunter for. So there are um, uh, some pretty cheap copies of Spy Hunter out there. And now uh, let's get into my personal memories of Spy Hunter. All right, time travelers. As I have said on previous episodes, I got my Commodore 64 in 1985. Now, Spy Hunter, the arcade game, was released in 1983, and it was released for the Commodore 64 in 1984. So it may have been a little bit old, but back then, a year didn't really make a difference to me when it came to video games. There were a lot of games that I didn't hear about until six months or a year after they had been released. So, uh... I don't know that I would have considered Spy Hunter to be an old game. Now, at that same time, we still had our Apple II, and I remember getting Spy Hunter for the Apple II, and it was okay, but a lot of the games on the Apple II 
were computer games. So even though it was Spy Hunter and Spy Hunter was an arcade game, when you played it on the Apple, there was no mistaking. It did not look uh, exactly like the arcade game. It looked like a game on the Apple II. I mean, the Apple II had a very specific color palette and very specific sound limitations. And so even though you were playing a version of the arcade game, you were playing an Apple II game. Now, I remember seeing Spy Hunter for the first time on the Commodore 64. My buddy Jeff had the cartridge of Spy Hunter. And when I played that, it's easy to say today it is not identical to the arcade game because we have that ability to put, you know, we can open MAME and then clo- and see Spy Hunter and close it down and then immediately open uh, the Commodore 64 version of Spy Hunter and we can see those differences, right? Um, but there wasn't uh, an arcade in my town that had Spy Hunter. Uh, my buddy, uh, Justin, who lived in Norman, which was 45 minutes away, they had uh, spy hunter, uh, at the, uh, at a restaurant that he lived at. And, uh, there were other places. I mean, the mall definitely had spy hunter, but the little arcades near me at the bowling alley and the, uh, the, the laundromat and those little places that we went to didn't have spy hunter. So, uh, it wasn't like. You could see Spy Hunter for me, see Spy Hunter one day in the arcade and then see it at home the next day and then make those direct comparisons. You really just had your memories to go off of. And so when I first played Spy Hunter on the Commodore 64, I thought it was as close as you would ever get to playing an arcade game on a home computer. I thought the graphics were great. I thought the sound was great. Um, and I just really enjoyed every part of it. So I would say that is my uh, biggest memory were games like Spy Hunter for the Commodore is what made me want a Commodore 64. Now there again, you, there are games that were more well-suited for computers and things that worked better on computers. If you looked at things like pinball construction set or any of those construction sets, music construction set or text adventures or role-playing games like Bard's Tale, and those would never work in an arcade setting. Arcane was much more uh, twitchy and, and fast-paced and action-based. Um, so, you know, there were things that computers did better. There were things that uh, worked better in arcades. Uh, and so that's how I kind of thought computer gaming was going to go. But when I saw the Commodore 64 and they started putting out games like Spy Hunter that were really, again, to me, so few concessions were made on the home version of uh, Spy Hunter. You know, when I had a Atari 2600 and we got Pac-Man, and I know everybody uses that as an example, but you could look at Centipede or any any of those conversions. I look at Asteroids, you know, um, those games were reminiscent of the arcade version and they kind of captured the essence of the arcade version, but you know, concessions had to be made based off of hardware limitations. And other than the aspect ratio that we talked about on spy hunter, and I guess, um, the, uh, the joystick button configuration, although I would say that's really more a programmer choice than something that had to be done. Uh, they didn't have to do that with the dual joysticks on spy hunter, but, um, you know, so, the limitations, you know, again, like of the aspect ratio of the of the TV back then, turning your console TV on your on its side for playing an arcade game would have been out of the question. But, um, you know, for for what the TV could do, like when you played Spy Hunter on the Commodore sixty four, 
it was as close as playing it to the arcade. I mean, that was what sold me on that system was not all the other things you could do. Um, you know, there were lots of ads at the time that said, you know, don't forget you can do homework. <laughs> don't forget you can, uh, balance your checkbook and all that. And, and, you know, computers could do that. But for me, uh, I just remember that. And, and I've looked at my, my personal collection of old Commodore discs and spy hunter is on disc number 40. So that was a very early acquisition for me. And again, it was really just that idea uh, on the Commodore that, hey, this system could come pretty close uh, to arcade gaming. So that's kind of on the Commodore 64 what Spy Hunter represents to me is, uh, you know, in one part of it you could say whether or not Spy Hunter is a good game. And I do think it's a good game. But on the other side, you could say it represented more than that. It represented the ability to really bring these arcade hits to the home uh, computer and that's uh, was the whole reason of wanting a Commodore 64. For graphics, I give Spy Hunter 5 out of 5 Peter Guns. I just don't think they could have done a better job of translating the arcade version to the home Commodore 64. For music, I also give it 5 out of 5 Peter Guns. You get the music, you get the sound effects, you get everything that you would want in a home version. Uh, for sound effects, I give it 4 out of 5 Peter Guns. I don't think all the sound effects are there, but there's enough there. There's bullets and screeching and car sounds and everything that you would want in a home game. So overall, I'm going to give Spy Hunter four out of five Peter Guns. I do think it's a great game. I think it's a great conversion. You've got great music. You've got the graphics. Everything is there. I would say it's a little difficult to control. And whoever came up with that second button scheme should have a talking to. But hey, whoever said being a spy was easy. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash RobCasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All supporters of my podcast on Patreon get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. Support tiers start at just $2 a month. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the RSS feed at podcast.roboharra.com, and through the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, like You Don't Know Flack, Like a DOS, Cactus Flack, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.roboharra.com for more information and links to these shows. Many of the news, articles, and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, The Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to hunting spies, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Finally, this podcast would not be possible without the support of Patreon listeners like these. 
For my 8-bit supporters, that includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restle, Brian Barr, Chris Folds, C-Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Daniel Jaleppa, Dave Velociraptor, Dave Zilly, David Hearn, David Modalap, Eric Stranisi, Extent to the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Elier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Motocar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Matthew Perron, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Hope, Patrick Markey, Paul Morano, Petzl, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Robbie Ray, Robot Doctor 82, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossi, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. And for my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boatshead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Drone Doctor, Edward Smith, Graham Vebke, Joe Sharippa, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Michael Ryan, Paul Nermix Nermanen, Rick Reynolds, John Hudson Mackay and Scott Van Drasick, Steve Sharippa, Vintage Volts, Zyke, and Mr. Wacky. 